Well, I I give you a Texas greeting. Put it all up here. Preacher was up a saying, and all of us were born in sin. And an old cowpoke stood up and said, Parson, you're wrong there, because I was born in Texas. That's the way with me. <laughs> so we begin our Bible conference. And the title of the message is The Infallible, Inerrant, Inspired Word of God. We're going to read two passages as background. The first will be from 2 Timothy at the end of chapter 3 and the first verse of chapter 4. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. All Scripture is Theonustus, God-breathed. From Theo, God, breathless breath. All scripture is from the breath of God. I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, preach the word. And the second background text. In the book of Hebrews chapter 4. Beginning at verse 12. For the word of God is quick, living, and powerful, and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, of the joints and marrow, and the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. There has never been a phenomenon in history that was so unvaryingly, consistently opposite, derogatory, hateful, bitter, as the tirades and the insults against that book. And they do not diminish. They are as vile and as vicious today as they were hundreds and hundreds of years ago. So I look at it. Couldn't help but do it. Reading those higher critical attacks against the inspired word of the Bible and reading the world's contempt for the revelations in the Holy Scripture. And I am amazed at the development in the presentation of this holy book for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. They have been digging up with archaeological spades there in the Near East, in the Holy Land. And there has never been one spade turned, not yet, that has denied any syllable 
in this holy book I hold in my hand. For example, for years the critics would say when the Bible avows that Moses wrote, for example, the first five books of the Pentateuch, Moses wrote, they scoffed and laughed, saying, Moses didn't write. There was no such thing as writing in that day. Then they dug up those tablets, cuneiform inscriptions in Ugarit, in Rosh Shamrah, in Tel El Amarna, in Egypt and the Near East, and learned that hundreds and hundreds of years before Moses, men wrote. Or take again, the critics used to scoff and laugh at the idea of a Hittite. Through the Old Testament, you will find references made to the Hittites. And the scorners said there never was anybody named a Hittite. It's a figure of some gross imagination in those that wrote the Word of God. Then the spade turned up. The archaeological discoveries appeared. And I saw an issue of Time magazine presenting the empire of the Hittites. They covered Asia Minor and they covered the Holy Land. Or take again, you will find in the Bible, you will find the story, especially in Daniel, of Belshazzar. And the scoffers laughed to scorn. There never lived any such ruler of Babylon as Belshazzar. And that was until recent days. Then they began to read those cuneiform inscriptions, digging them up out of that valley of the Euphrates. And I could write you a biography today about Belshazzar. His father, Nabonidus, the last king of the empire, was a recluse. He went into the sands of Arabia to live like a hermit and turned the kingdom over to his son, Belshazzar. Herodotus, the great historian, was there in Babylon 70 years after Belshazzar. He never had heard of him. The name of Belshazzar fell out of human history. And thus the scorn and scoffing of those who criticize the Word of God. But these archaeological spades now confirm every syllable of what the Bible says. <clears throat> I take just one other. In biblical, critical, higher critical history, until just recently, these uh, scholarly critics scoffed and laughed that John could have written the fourth gospel. It took 300 years, they said, for that kind of theology to develop. And whoever it was that wrote John wrote it about 350 A.D. then, digging up in all of those uh, cuneiform uh, inscriptions and, and, uh, and scrolls in Egypt, they found, and I read it, 
they found a quotation from the Gospel of John that was written in 97 A.D. It is a miracle, it is a marvel what archaeological discoveries have done to confirm the Word of God. And I repeat, there has never been one spade of dirt turned by the archaeological shovel that has denied any syllable of this holy and inspired and inerrant book. Well, what we have to do is to be careful about our historical facts. There was a man here in California by the name of Harry Rimmer. He was a he was a, a lecturer all over this part of the world. And uh, he was a great defender of this book, the Bible. And wherever he went, he'd put an ad in the paper saying, I'll give anyone a thousand dollars if they'll point out to me one, 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 just one error in the Word of God. So in New York, a woman read that and got in touch with him and claimed the one thousand dollars. She said, the Bible says that Adam and Eve ate an apple, and it has been avowed that no apples can grow in the hot deserts of the Mesopotamian Valley in the Garden of Eden, and therefore I claim the thousand dollars. Well, Harry Rimmer says, where does it says in the Bible that Adam and Eve ate an apple? So she let the days pass while she ruminated and studied and finally said back to him, I can't find it in the Bible, but I know it's there because it is the fact that they ate an apple. Good not alive. That is the foolishness of the idiocy of these who criticize God's holy word. And not only let us be careful about our historical facts, let us be careful about our scientific facts. Science is like a chicken. It is always molting. It is always changing. In the Louvre, in the great library of the Louvre, there are three and one-half miles of science books that are passé. They are ridiculous now. There's no such thing as an historical incident discovered or a scientific fact that has been learned that denies the Word of God. That's an unusual thing. The Bible was written by about 40 different men over a period of a 1,500 years. And yet, from beginning to end, they are consistent in their revelation of the will of God for us who are living on this planet Earth. It's an amazing thing. The Bible was written against some of the most unbelievable backgrounds that you could ever think for. For example, in Egypt, they had a cosmogony that was affirmed by the 
finest scientists and scholars in Egypt. And what they taught in the science of that day was that there was a flying ovoid going around and around and around in infinite space. And when the process of mitosis had culminated, there had stout the world. So I pick up the Bible and I think I'll read about that flying egg going around and around and around, out of which this earth is hatched, according to the latest science of Egypt. And when I open my book to read about that, oh boy, I read instead ten of the most marvelous words in human speech. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Or take again. So much of this Bible was written against the background of Babylonian science, the latest uh, Chaldean discoveries. Take Second Chronicles and, and uh, Ezekiel and Jeremiah and uh, Hosea and uh, Daniel. All of those were written in the days of the latest Babylonian science. Well, what was it? Well, this was it. According to the latest science in Babylon, in Chaldea, there were two gods. One was named Tiamat, an evil deity. And the other was Marduk, a good deity. And they fought and fought. And Marduk, the good deity, overwhelmed Tiamat, the evil deity. So when Marduk proved victorious, he slew Tiamat and flattened his body out. And that was the earth. Then Marduk spit, according to the latest Babylonian science, and men sprung up. And, and the men spit, and where they spat, women sprang up. And where the women spit, Animals sprung up. When I read that, I thought of a crazy thing I read. There was a sign in Chicago, Don't smoke. Remember the Chicago fire? And a fellow wrote underneath, And don't spit. Remember the Johnstown flood. I repeat, Nothing in human discovery has ever been found to deny or abrogate one syllable of this book that I hold in my hand. On the other hand, it is amazing to me as I turn the pages of that Bible and read what it says. For example, in Job 26, it says, God hangeth the world on nothing. Good grief. The science of the entire world denied such an idea as that. Those Egyptians had a scientific theory that there were five pillars that held up the earth, one at each corner and one in the middle. 
I submit to you that one in the middle was a sure, sure imaginative guesswork. It's a speculation. The Greeks. There's nobody in the world that reads anything about Greek but that knows that they, in their latest science, said that the world was held up upon the back of a giant called Atlas. And over there in India, according to their finest discoveries, the world was balanced on the back of an elephant. And he stood on a giant turtle, and that accounted for these earthquakes in California when the elephant shook why the earth shook. That is what the finest scientific discoveries in this last history avowed. But God said that his world is hung upon nothing. Or take again in the 28th chapter of the book of, of, of the book of, of Job. He speaks of the weight of the winds. Sweet young people, it was not until 1647, 1647, that the Italian Terracilli discovered the barometer and found that there was weight to the wind. But it was written here in the Bible a thousand years before Christ. Or take again. Isaiah speaks of the circle of the earth. Why, young people, it was not until a comparatively recent day that they discovered that the Bible, that the, that the earth is round. When Columbus started out, they thought he'd fall off of an abyss into the unknown blackness of darkness below. But he spoke of the circle of the earth. Well, enough. I don't look upon the Bible as a book of science. It would never occur to me to read the Bible with the thought in mind that I'm going to be introduced to the secrets of this world that God has made. I never think of it in terms of that. Nor do I think of it in terms of just human history. There's so many other areas whereby those subjects can be minutely and wonderfully explored. What I do is, when I open my book and read the Bible, I'm reading about the meaning of life and uh, the things that pertain to the building of a home the rearing of children, and uh, the hope beyond death and the grave and the wonders of glory. That's the Bible to me. And I want to take out of the experiences of my life, I want to take one leaf. And the reason that it comes to my heart is it has to do with racism and uh, religious 
and uh, cultural and racial prejudice. You see, I began my pastoral work. I've been a pastor over 67 years. I began my pastoral work when I was 17. And in the little country church that I was pastor, there was a godly man named Ed Davidson. And I stayed in his house, oh, so many times. Well, one day when I came to his country house, he showed me a book. And he said, this is the strangest looking book I ever saw in my life. And he put it in my hand. He said, what could that be? Well, I said, Deacon, that is a Spanish Bible. It's a Bible written in Spanish. Well, he said, what in the world shall I do with it? Throw it away. I said, no, don't throw that away. You have a tenant on your farm here who is a Mexican and has a dear wife and a whole bunch of children. You take that Spanish Bible and give it to him. Well, he said, I never thought about that. So he did. He took that Spanish Bible and gave it to that tenant. Well, in the days that passed, I was told by Ed Davidson that that Mexican had given his heart to Jesus and had won his wife and children to the faith. Oh, how precious. Then upon a day when I, when I went to the uh, Ed Davidson home, why, he said to me, he said, you know, my tenant house burned down and that uh, Mexican tenant has lost everything that he has. But he wants you to come to see him. And I told him that when you came I would bring him to the house and you could visit with our young pastor. So I got in his T-model Ford and we made our way to the rum, this rumble-down shack of a barn place where he had placed the tenant family until they could do something about where their home would be because the other one had burned down. So when we got there to that ramshackle dump of a place where the tenant family was temporarily housed, why, Ed Davidson, my deacon, said, Now, young pastor, you just stand here by the car, and I want to tell him you're here. He, he wants to do something. He's got something for you. So I stood by that T-model Ford. And he went into the house and told them that I was there. And did you know, in just a little bit, out came a procession. First was the father. Then the mother. Then the eldest child. And then on down to the latest little one. They were in a they were in a marching line, and they came marching up to me. 
And he held in his hand a Bible that was mostly burned. And my deacon said to me that that father, when the house was on fire, rushed inside at the peril of his life in order to recover the Word of God, the Holy Bible. And they marched in that procession up to me, and he placed in my hand that Bible that was mostly burning and avowed this is the one precious thing I recovered from that burning house. Well, to finish it, they'd given their hearts to the Lord and they wanted to join the church. Dear me, you mean you're going to have a Mexican in this church under no conditions, no conditions. And that was my first introduction to racism and racial prejudice. And I thank God for the memory. I said, by the grace of God, we accept them in their faith and in the commitment of their lives to the Lord Jesus. And we did it. And I baptized the whole family into the fellowship of that little village church. Oh, young people, there's nothing in the world like standing on the inerrant, infallible, inspired Word of God. Build your life on it. Build your home on it. Build your business on it. Build your church on it. And look to heaven for the blessing that inevitably accompanies those who love this precious and holy book. Thank you, young people, for the privilege of being here with you. And thank you for loving the Lord and this school and the wonderful preacher and pastor, Dr. John MacArthur, and these teachers and professors that are here to guide us in the way of the blessed Jesus. I have to catch a plane back this morning, and uh, Michael is going to take me to the airport, and I, I like to shake hands with everybody. And uh, for me to leave is just against everything that... I'm like, but I've got to go. So, Michael Cigaretta, you get over there at that door, and and one of you men, you've got me hooked up here. Come up here, son. You've got me hooked up with a with a bunch of stuff. 